Well, good morning, Trailhead Church. I'm glad to see you this morning. Gave a little bit of extra time for the extroverts over here. Uh, we're going to be in Book of Romans, Romans chapter three. We're actually going to be there for several weeks now, um, and so you'll get familiar to turning to that passage, Romans chapter three, verses twenty-one to twenty-six. If you're using our Bibles, you can find that on page nine forty-one. Uh, but we're going to be in Romans chapter three, verses twenty-one to twenty-six. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Uh, Today's a big Sunday. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, a national holiday. Y'all got a team out there? Anybody rooting for somebody today? No? Any Chiefs fans? Any, any, any Niners fans? Any Ads fans? Yeah, there you go. I mean, honestly, I, that's, that's why I'm tuning in today. I'm, I'm watching the ads. Um, the, uh, the creative geniuses behind these things save their best uh, until today, and, and uh, it gives me an opportunity to shake my head and think, this is your best? Every once in a while, every once in a while they hit a home run, but the rest of the time, man, they're just swinging. Um, but today is Super Bowl Sunday. This is my uh, Marcus Allen jersey. It's been hanging in my closet for 20 years. That's about the last time I really cared about football. Um, so it was a good opportunity to wear uh, since the Chiefs are actually in the Super Bowl. But there's something more important than the Super Bowl happening today. Today is also Palindrome Sunday. I don't know if you knew that. A palindrome is something that is the exact same, a letter or number sequence, the exact same in both directions. So Bob is a palindrome because no matter how you read his name, he's still Bob, right? Today is 02022020. It is the first time this century that, uh, that we have a palindrome Sunday. So there you go. That also is very important for those of you who are numbers geeks and like things like that. Uh, But on a more serious note, um, this is also the beginning uh, of Black History Month. And um, uh, I think this is important for us. Uh, The more I learn about the history of African Americans, the more I'm shocked by how much I didn't learn about the African American experience. Now, some of you could rightfully blame the fact that I was seldom in class. And you would be right. I was in high school and middle school. Um, If I was there, I still wasn't there. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that the curriculum itself completely ignores uh, the African-American experience. Um, And and here's the thing. Things that have happened in the past don't just go away. They continue to have ripple effects into the present. And for us to see people, know people, love people, it it is incredibly important for us that we continue to humbly learn about the forces that have helped shaped our current reality. And so I would like to challenge us, a pastoral challenge, to take this as an opportunity to grow in our knowledge of our own shared history so that we can see people and, and, and understand and, and honestly grow in our ability to, to love people. Now, one of the most impactful books that I read in 2019 was The Color of Compromise by Dr. Jamar Tisby. I've recommended it a lot over the last two years. Dr. Tisby gives us a, a survey of how the church was complicit in the dehumanizing and abusive structures of racism in American history. It is um, a ridiculously well-researched and insightful um, book that I I recommend. Now, I've had a few friends uh, express concern uh, to me about these recommendations. I've had this concern expressed to me numerous times since I've been recommending it for the last year, uh, primarily because in the last chapter of the book, he lays out his own personal convictions for what would be good next steps for how to deal with these things. And, And some of his personal convictions are uh, not everyone's going to agree with them. Some of them are, are, are quite controversial, right? Even he, he, would, he would argue for reparations and things like that. Um, and, and I get that there are some people that aren't, you know, not going to want to, not going to agree with that. But, but even if you would argue with Dr. Tisby on his personal perspectives in the final chapter of his book, there's nothing else out there 
that presents this history in such a succinct and readable way. Um, there's a guy named Cody Float who is a, uh, um, a writer and, a, and a, uh, he's in education, but he writes for a group called Founders Ministry. Some of you are going to be familiar with that. Some of you have no idea what that is. Founders Ministry is uh, part of the very, very conservative side of, of the SBC life, and um, they blog, and they're kind of a conservative think tank for that side. And, and he wrote a, um, a critique and a, uh, uh, a response to Dr. Tisby's book. Now, most of his blog, I will tell you, most of his blog is dedicated to refuting the idea of reparations. That's his main kind of goal in writing that. But he still had this to say, and I want to read it because I think it's actually exactly why I'm recommending this book. He said, the majority of what Dr. Tisby presents, however, is worthy of deep reflection. Many Christians throughout the history of America vigorously defended American chattel slavery and Jim Crow laws, and that really ought to give us a humbling punch to the gut. Those who would affirm Orthodox theology on many points were often the first to rob African and Native Americans of the dignity that they had as image bearers of God. Those who would affirm the perpetuity of God's moral law for the Christian would then break that law as they hung African Americans from trees. Here in America, we have a history that ought to grieve our souls, and there is no need to sanitize that. We must be truth-tellers. We must be those who can honestly reckon with the past in order that we may interpret it through the lens of Scripture and seek to walk in a gospel-motivated obedience to God's commandments in our own generation. Hearty amen and agree. Um, I recommend this book to you. It is worth your time. Now, if you're not a reader and you're like, see, that's just, I'm not going to buy this book. I'm not going to read this book. That's great. Um, uh, I would highly recommend um, a video series uh, that is actually on Amazon and, and they've actually made it part of Amazon Prime. So you can watch it for free now. Uh, from PBS, they did an excellent history of the African-American uh, experience. Um, it's called The African, African-Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. Uh, the narrator and director is um, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr., and uh, it's just phenomenally well done, phenomenally well done. And so if you're not a reader and you'd rather watch something, totally recommend you grab that video series and, and, and watch it. But, you know, let's, let's continue to be humble learners, right? Let's hum- continue to be humble learners. That's my encouragement to us, that, that we would continue to, to push in, to learn, to listen. Um, uh, and, and in learning and listening, learning how to see people, hear people, and, and love people, because that's, that's what the gospel requires of us, right? So happy Super Bowl Sunday, happy Palindrome Day, and, and happy start to Black History Month. Now, before we jump into our text, I want to give you an update on our Flourish campaign. Flourish is our capital campaign that we started at the end of 2019, and, uh, and, and I'm going to give you regular updates on this as we continue to move forward, because there's a lot to celebrate, uh, and I kind of want to keep it in front of us, that, that we're reminded what we're doing together. So far, we have 86 givers who have pledged a total of $816,640 over the course of three years. Uh, The thing that's really, really cool about that is we've had 15 people join our capital campaign since we launched it publicly. I love that. We have already collected a total of $124,869. So not only has that reduced our, um, uh, what we owe on our building, um, there is there's an additional savings, right? The estimated interest over 30 years on that, we were, we've already saved an additional $102,900 um, from, from not having to pay the interest on that. Um, you guys, that's worth celebrating. That's worth celebrating. Praise God. Um, and... Um, We're looking for our roadmap requires 120 people to be involved in this capital campaign over the course of three years. So we continue to invite and and keep it open. If you want to find out more about it, you can visit our uh, connection point out in the lobby and they'll be happy to to give you some information that shows you what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how we plan to get there. Our goal is to raise $1.1 million so that we can completely pay off our building, plant a church, and uh, and partner with Converge, our, our ministry partner in this. So we're looking for 34 more people to join this effort and we are praying to raise $284,000 more over the course of the next three years in addition to this. So keep praying even as we celebrate. Let's keep praying and working toward our shared goal. All right, our text, Romans chapter 3. We started it last week at Trailhead United by looking at uh, really the but now in, in verse 21. 
Here's the thing. Hopefully you picked up one of our, our Romans study guides out in the lobby. Um, you'll notice there's one week given in our study guide to 21 through 26. And that was because I expected to cover it in one week. I was planning on doing about a, a 50,000 foot flyby, just pointing out the peaks on the mountains and moving on. The more I studied this, the more I sat in it, the more I wrestled with it, the more I prayed over it, I just felt like there's too much here and it's too important to go that quickly. We're not in a rush. And so I know this is disruptive to some of our note takers because we're going to be spending four more weeks in this paragraph, okay? Um, instead of being at, at 30,000 or 50,000 feet, we're going we're gonna to walk through the forest. Um, and, and honestly, to tell you the truth, we're still about 50 feet above the forest. Some of you are going to feel like, no way, man. This is way too detailed. This is so teachy. Get back to preachy, right? But, but it is technical. It is, but I'm just, just so you know, I'm, I'm leaving out so much. So I love this book and I love this paragraph. Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther said specifically about this paragraph that it is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible. That's a huge statement. This paragraph is the chief point of the entire Bible. Um, now, I don't know, you know, I don't know that I would subscribe to that, but, but I would have a hard time, honestly, arguing with him. I don't have the pedigree to do that. So all I'm telling you is he thought it was that important, so it's worth it to us to spend time. It is going to be a little bit more technical. So I'm warning you, stick with me. Stick with me because there's a narrative that unfolds through this paragraph that will help deepen your understanding of the gospel. Even if you're not a follower of Christ, you're going to walk away with a much greater sense of why we believe what we believe and exactly what we believe when we, when we use phrases that often oversimplify very, very complex things. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that we get to spend this time. This morning, we're going to be looking just at verse 23. Just at verse 23. Now, to set the context, let's go ahead and reread 19 through 23, and then we're going to be focusing on 23. So starting in verse 19. Now, we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That's what we're going to be focusing on. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you're like, this is going to be a chipper sermon, isn't it? We're looking at the bad news this morning. But it's the bad news that makes the good news so good. So, so we're going to be looking at, at this. And, and it's broken into like two, two subparts, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let's, let's start first of all with with all have sinned. Three little English words, right? Three little English words. Two in the Greek, so even shorter. But it has profound depths in its implication. All have sinned. The Greek word uh, hamartaneo, um, have sinned, it simply means to do wrong. All have done wrong. All have sinned. Um, all have, have, have done bad things. That's a simple way of putting it, right? But the root of the word means to miss the mark. So like if you, if you dig down into the, the etymology of the word, it means to, to miss the mark, right? All have missed the mark. Think about it like a bullseye. Uh, if you've been target practicing, if you've ever used a rifle or a pistol or a bow and arrow and you're using a, a, um, a bullseye, um, what are you aiming for? Well, the center dot, Right? So everything that doesn't hit the center dot is what? It's a miss, right? Now, some people miss closer than others, right? And we reward that. Yeah, good job. You missed better than the other guy, right? But what this verse is saying is that all of us have missed the mark. All have sinned. All have missed the mark. It doesn't matter how far you've missed it. That's not the point of the verse. 
The point of the verse is that all have missed it. We as humans love to deal with all the shades of gray, right? We, we, we don't tend to think of things as good and bad. Now, there are some of us that are more wired that way, but, but even, even those of us that are like black and white, kind of good and bad, we're often thinking in terms of what's bad and what's worse, what's kind of bad and, and what's better. And that's because in our narrative of life, in our way of seeing the world, things generally aren't completely right or wrong. Now, maybe they are for others because we like to judge them. But when it comes to ourselves, we don't generally come to the table with a black and white right or wrong mentality. There are things that are bad and things that are not so bad, things that are kind of good and things that are a little better because, because we measure goodness through comparison. We're continually measuring goodness through comparison. Maybe I didn't hit the setter dot, but at least I hit the target. Not like you, right? You completely missed. So that means you're bad, I'm better. We're always comparing. The problem is this, y'all. God, there's no gradation of gray with God. God is righteous. Not kind of righteous, not a little bit righteous, not mostly righteous. He is righteous. He is completely holy. He is, he is, he is perfect in His beauty, perfect in His love, perfect in His justice, perfect in His integrity. He is perfect in, 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 in all of His moral dignity, all of His beauty. All, he is perfectly holy. There's all brightness and no darkness. Perfectly holy. And with God, He doesn't see varying degrees of unrighteousness. He sees holy and unholy, righteous and unrighteous. Um, You've either hit the mark or you've missed it. You're either like Him or you're not like Him. Those are the only two categories that matter because holiness isn't graded on a curve. Right? There's no cosmic scales that God's comparing you to some changing outcome. It, 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 is, it is you are either completely holy or you are not. You've either hit the mark or you've missed it. And all have sinned. All have missed the mark. Now, here's the challenge, y'all. God's not indifferent on this topic. This isn't just an intellectual exercise for Him. It is a deeply, morally, personal exercise. I remind you of a verse we looked at in Romans 1. We've already taught this and we taught it in its passage, but I want to remind you of it because this verse, Romans 3.23, the one we're looking at, is actually a summary statement of the whole first three and a half chapters of Romans. Everything we've already taught in the first three and a half chapters of Romans are summed up in this one sentence, right? And it began, this whole section began with this verse, 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God is not indifferent to our missing the mark. God is provoked to wrath. Now, a lot of us have a hard time with this idea of a wrathful God. But I want to assure you, we're not talking about a moody, grumpy parental figure. We're not talking about somebody who just had a bad day and, and you knocked over your milk and they exploded and overreacted. God, in His perfect love and perfect righteousness, is provoked to anger by those who are ungodly. In other words, they're trying to ungod God. That's kind of what that means. They're, they're trying to ungod God. They don't want God to be the center of the universe, they want to be the center of the universe. They don't want God's moral character to be the center of the universe. They want their sliding scale to be the center of the universe. They, they, don't, want, they don't want God to be the measure of all that is good and right and pure and holy. And, and They want to be the measure. They want to completely upend the creative structure of the universe and they want to create it in their own image. They want to un-God God. And God is provoked to wrath. Not because He's personally slighted, but because of the prideful, arrogant blasphemy of a flawed human thinking they can upend all of creation and recreate it in their own image. They are trying to un-God God, which would unleash untold suffering 
on the entire creation. Not only that, they are unrighteous, unjust. They act in in ways that abuse others that are created in the image of God. And instead of exercising their power for the good of others, for the flourishing of life, they abuse that power for their own personal self-preservation, their own personal self-enrichment, their own personal self-agendas. They benefit from the suffering of others. And they feel completely entitled to do so because they think of themselves as God. I have a right to benefit from your loss because you were stupid enough to lose. You were weak enough to be taken advantage of. They are unjust to those who bear the image of God. This provokes God to wrath because He's a God of love. When you are abused, God has provoked wrath. When the image of God in you is not honored, God is provoked to wrath. Not because he is a a grumpy parental unit, but because he is the very manifestation of righteous love. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by unrighteousness suppress the truth. We create stories that justify us and condemn others. We're constantly creating new stories to make ourselves the good guys and other people bad guys, to explain away our bad stuff and make it not quite as bad as as it actually is, right? He's provoked wrath. He is not indifferent to our cosmic treason. He is not indifferent to our selfish abuse of others for personal gain. All have sinned. All have missed the mark and are unholy and unrighteous. All are under the wrath of God. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the tense of this verb. Tense refers to when a verb occurs, right? I'll give you a little English lesson, right? Um, I, I throw a ball, that's present tense. I threw a ball, that's past tense. I will throw a ball, that, that is future tense, right? This is a weird tense called aorist. Um, and we don't have it in English. It, 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 it is um, a Greek tense that refers to an action that took place in the past at a specific point, but it has ongoing current results. That's the aorist tense. Something that occurred in the past at a specific point, but there are ongoing consequences to to that effect. Um, What specific event happened in the past at a specific point that has ongoing effects? When we're talking about all have sinned. Well, for you, you might think of a personal thing you did that was a bad choice, that was a sin. And you're still feeling the effects of that choice, and you wish you weren't. You did it, and you are still feeling the effects of it, right? I think Paul's talking about that. All have sinned. All of us in our own personal histories have things we've done that were, that were, that were violations of, of God's moral character, the rejection of God's law, uh, that were selfish and self-focused, and we're still feeling the effects. But I think Paul is looking way past our own story, back to the beginning of all of our stories, Because at the beginning of our story, there was one man who made one choice that affected all of us. There was something that occurred in the past that had a profound effect that's still affecting us today, and that would be the sin of Adam. I think there's actually a a hint here, an allusion back to the creational rebellion of mankind against God. All have sinned. Adam. Adam was created in the image of God and was entrusted by God to be the steward of all creation. He was, he was given the vice regency of God. So what that means is, is because he bore the image of God, he could exercise the authority of God and dominion over creation. But instead of doing so to the glory of God, he rebelled against God. He wouldn't revolve around God. He would instead revolve around himself. He wouldn't live for the glory of God. He would live for his own glory. He committed cosmic treason against God. And in doing so, He not only broke his own relationship with God, but he broke humanity's relationship with God because he was the steward. He acted not just for himself, he acted for us, which means every single one of us are born as children of Adam with this sordid inheritance. We're all born with that same rebellion already sown in our hearts. When he acted, he acted for all of us. So all have sinned. As children of Adam, we sinned in Adam. 
right? So we're sinners by birth and we're sinners by choice. We are born with this inheritance and then we act on this inheritance. Why do people sin? Because they were born with this sinful inheritance. And what that means is, is, is we don't sin because... Um, we're not sinners because we sin. We, we sin because we're sinners. It is, it is the, the default mode of our heart that we've received from our first parent. This is a doctrine that is known as total depravity. And um, it, 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 it can be a little controversial, but it's a very simple doctrine that says that we're born with an unfixable, set bent towards sin in our hearts. Like from the get-go, we're not born blank slates, We're not born basically good and learn how to do bad. We are born. So you don't have to teach people how to lie. Parents, you've noticed this yet? You don't have to teach your kids how to rise up against authority. You You don't have to teach your children how to be selfish. In fact, all the things you have to teach your children are about controlling those urges and learning how to show respect instead of violence and learning how to put others in front of self because everything in us is wired for self. So if we're born with this broken inheritance and we all share it, why aren't we all as bad as we could be? If we're born sinners, why aren't we all Hitler? Hitler's like the gold standard of bad, right? I mean, anybody who wants to compare something bad, it's like, yeah, you're like Hitler, right? Hitler's like, like the, if anybody's totally depraved, I think most of us would agree Hitler hits the mark, right? So why aren't we all Hitler. <laughs> Bad news. We all are. We all are. Let me, let me show you what I mean by that. I'm going to put a diagram on the screen behind me. Desires are in the innermost circle. A concentric circle right outside of that are choices, and then the concentric circle outside of that is behaviors. What we see in each other are behaviors. In fact, most of the time, the only thing we really see about ourselves are our behaviors, the things we do. Now, we know there are choices that led to those things, Right? And sometimes we examine those choices, and sometimes we don't, because we feel like we didn't even really have a choice. It's just what I had to do. But you know what? There's even a layer behind the choices, and those are our desires. It's our desires that lead to our choices, and it's our choices that lead to our behavior. Behavior is the fruit. Desire is the root. Thomas Cranmer famously said, and I've quoted this a lot over the years, Uh, But he famously said, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So we tend to think of ourselves as primarily rational beings. We weigh things out, we think carefully, and then we make a choice based on logic and reason. Uh, No, we're not. The logic and reason often are employed after the choice has already been made, simply to create a narrative that justifies the choice. We made the choice because of a desire, and then we created a narrative that explains it or justifies it. And here's the thing, you guys. When you get to that deepest level, as we looked at in Romans 1, we all have disordered desires. Our desires don't point at what they're supposed to point at. Let me give you an illustration. We all have deep and strong desires for good things. They're good desires. You desire significance. You want to be an important part of something important. We all have a deep desire for security, right? You want to be safe. You want the variables of life to be controlled. You you want to be secure and free from threat. We all have a deep desire for approval. We want to know that we are known and loved. And we all have a deep desire for pleasure or rest. We, We want to have the richness and the fullness of life in such a way that it leaves us satiated and pleasant and full of joy. Those are our deep desires. Now, if our hearts were properly aligned, all of those desires would be first primarily fulfilled in our relationship with God. In other words, we would find our significance in the fact that the God of all glory loves us and covers us with His glory. Right? But instead, we fight for platform. We fight for recognition. We fight for, for, for greater recognition. We want, we want a bigger name. We want a better office. We want, we want a better reputation. We want more respect. Why? Because we're not walking in humble dependence, leaning on the sovereignty or the, 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 
the glory of God, the, the significance that he gives us, we're fighting for our own. We're being competitive and comparative. Because our desires aren't leading to humble dependence on God. They are leading to competing with God. We are going to be the center. We are going to be like God. Not content to be in the image of God. We will compete with God. Same thing happens with uh, security. right? Follower of Christ, the God of the entire universe, owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What kind of financial crisis could you ever end up in? That God himself has not already foreseen and could not miraculously equip you to go, go through. What physical threat could you ever face that the God of the universe could not protect you in it? We should be, of all people on the face of the earth, the boldest, fearless people on earth. How are you doing with that? Now, we, we look to our 401ks for our security. We look to our job title. We, we look to, to the deadbolts on our doors and, 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 and the security of our neighborhoods. We, we are continually fighting, not resting in humble dependence on God, but fighting and competing against others for a greater measure of security. Approval. Of all people, we should be the most loved. The God of the universe loves us, sent his son to die for us and rose again for us and has given his love for us. We, we should know that we are deeply loved and secure, that we are known and loved, and yet we are continually striving to make sure that person knows us, that person sees us, that person loves us. I am going to be good as long as that person adores me, loves me, says that I'm valuable. Why? Because we are competing for love instead of resting in God. Pleasure. We were designed to take pleasure in all of God's good gifts in the boundaries that God gave them. Instead, we break the boundaries. Why? Because we want the pleasure on our terms and our ways. We, we want to define our own pleasures. We, we, we want to use the gift of God to, to get the pleasure of God without having to have humble dependence on God. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this? Disordered desires. Our desires are pointed to the wrong place. We are no longer pointed toward having our deepest desires met in humble dependence on God. They are pointed to having our desires met in our independence from God, our competition with God. Therefore, because at our deepest level we have disordered desires, that influences every choice that manifests itself in every behavior. Now, some people are going to end up way, way, way off the charts out there with Hitler. And some people are going to end up on the chart really, really, apparently, or at least in their own estimation, a lot closer to the center. But we all have disordered desires, and that means that, that everything we do is influenced by this selfish drive. All of, our, all of our behavior, even the good stuff, even the good stuff, Good works done for self-focused reasons are not holy works. They're sin. If I do a good work in order to be seen as a good person, if I, if I do a good work in order to receive some benefit to myself, if I do something good, if, if not to impress others, but purely to impress myself, because that's the kind of thing a good person would do, and I want to think of myself as a good person, so I do that thing. That's not a holy work. That's what the Bible calls a dead work. It can't produce life. We're, we're pushing into it, trying to experience the fullness of life and to justify our experience of life, to claim that we are in some measure righteous, and yet it is a dead work. It cannot bear the fruit we are claiming it'll bear. The prophet Jeremiah, or excuse me, Isaiah, uh, said that our best works are like filthy rags. And the Hebrew there is very, very graphic. It means disposed of, um, menstrual garments. Our best works are not holy works. They are polluted by our disordered desires, our need to be self-centered, self-focused, self-glorying, self-protective, self-pleasuring. It is our focus on self. So yeah, you may not be Hitler, but that doesn't mean you're holy. Hitler manifested his disordered desires in different ways. But that doesn't make either one of us holy. We all still miss the mark. All have sinned. 
in Adam and in our own choices. And because all have sinned, transition to the second part, all fall short of the glory of God. Because all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Um, I have over the last year really seen this part of the verse in a brand new way that's really exciting to me because it plays out powerfully in chapter 5 and chapter 8 of the book of Romans, which we'll get to later. But I want to explain to you what happened. Let me tell you, first of all, how I used to teach this and why it was wrong. All right? So the word glory is one of those words you find a lot in the Bible, and it kind of has a fuzzy definition to it. And you don't even notice because you use the word so much, you don't pay a lot of attention to what it means. Right? So when I thought of the word glory, typically um, when you read the commentaries, and a lot of times you'll, you'll hear things like it is, it is the glowing luminescence, the brightness of God's moral character. And then they'll reference things like the Shekinah glory in the Old Testament where God showed up in the temple and he was this bright flaming light. Right? Or Moses, when, when he pleaded with God, show me your glory. Right? And God's like, you can't see my glory, it'll destroy you. I'll let you see my backside. Literally what it says in the Hebrew. And so he puts him in a cleft or a rock and he lets his backside pass in front of Moses. And it still has such a profound effect on him that when Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing. Like one of those watches when you turn off the light and the luminescence. Like it was so creepy to the people, they asked him to cover his face. And we're like, that's holiness, right? That's glory. Right? To fall short of the glory of God means that we don't glow like Moses with the moral perfection of God. And then we look at it fall short, and, and, and that's, man, that's a powerful metaphor. Man, that will preach. And I preached it, right? It's like, doesn't matter, man. You, you can jump. There's a chasm between you and the glory of God. And some people jump like two feet because you're just stumbling your way off. And some people jump like ten feet because they're like really athletic. But you all fall short. And because you fall short, that's why you don't glow with the moral perfection of God. Okay, that preaches, and, and in some ways, that's not bad, because it just restates what the first part of the verse said, all have, all have sinned. Now we just have a metaphorical application of it. But I was totally wrong, okay? Because that is not what's going on here. Let me explain to you why. Um, the word falls short. Um, the Greek word for fall short. This is the only place in the Bible that it's translated as fall short. It's not a bad translation, but it's a misleading one. Every other time, not every, but pretty much the predominant use of this word is translated as lack. To lack. Like, like, like when Jesus is speaking to the rich young ruler and he's like, and the rich young ruler's like, what do I need to inherit the kingdom of God? I've done all these things from my youth. And, and Jesus is like, man, you've done all these good things, but there is one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and follow me. Right? So fall short is a good translation as long as we think of it in those terms. Like you're going to pay a bill and you fall short of having enough money in your wallet. Right? You lack the appropriate amount of money. Um, the reason that's important is, is fall short, while it's a good translation and a powerful metaphorical image, is exactly why it becomes misleading. Because it implies, at least I used to take it to imply, that that meant we were trying really hard, but we just couldn't get there. Right? We were putting out all this effort, and, and it just wasn't enough. And here's the thing. Um, this verb doesn't describe something you do. It describes your current condition. It it isn't describing something you do but don't do well. It is describing the reality of your current condition. All have sinned and lack the glory of God is a more accurate presentation of what Paul is saying here. There is a shift in tense and a shift in voice that's important. Shift in tense. So all of sinned was aorist, right? A thing that was done in the past that has an ongoing consequence into the present. Fall short is present. It's a present reality, right? So all have sinned and lack or are lacking the glory of God. So there's a shift from talking about aorist to talking about present tense. And there's a shift in voice. And I know I'm getting way technical, but, but voice simply means who's doing the action, 
right? I threw the ball. That's active. I'm doing the action, right? I threw the ball and I broke his window, right? So I did an action and there's a consequence. He threw me off his property. I'm receiving the action. That's passive. All of sin is active. All fall short or all lack the glory of God is passive. All have sinned is active. And our lacking the glory of God is passive. It is the resulting reality of what we've done. The action is that we sinned. The result is that we have the lack of the glory of God. So what in the world does that mean, that we have the lack of the glory of God? Does that mean we're lacking in this glowing manifestation of the moral purity of God, that we don't glow like Moses glowed in the Old Testament? Um, and again, glory is such a familiar word that I don't think we question the, the meanings we often give it because it's become over-familiar to us, right? This idea of bright, shining luminescence coming from moral perfection just seems, well, of course that's what it means. Um, but I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think saying that we lack the glowing manifestation of God's moral perfection. Um, I read a book this summer. I've mentioned it before from Haley Gornson Jacob. Um, it was called Conform to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory in Romans. Sounds like a page turner, I know. It was. It was actually her doctoral dissertation. And she, she does an in-depth study of the word glory through the book of Romans. Now, broader context is brought into place, but she's specifically focusing on the book of Romans. And it brought clarity to something I didn't even know was fuzzy in my head. And once I got clarity on it, man, there were a number of things in the book of Romans that suddenly just made so much more sense to me. And, and this, is, this is what she's saying. Um, she's saying we need to understand both how Paul used it and how the readers would have received it because the two things actually are the same. Think about this. She's writing to the Romans, right? And in Rome, they had a Caesar. And, and in Rome they had a, a very, very high cultural value of glory. Like when they talked about the glory of the Caesar, were they talking about the glowing, luminescent manifestation of his moral purity? No. What did they mean by glory when they talked about the glory of the Caesar? Well, they meant his accomplishments. They meant his, his authority. They meant the seat of his dominion. They weren't talking about a glowing manifestation of moral purity. They were talking about power. They were talking about dominion. Now, for some of you, you're going to be like, okay, maybe that is how the Romans would have understood it, but our question isn't how the Romans defined glory. Our question is how does Scripture define glory because in the end, that's the only thing that really matters. Well, I would propose to you that Paul and the Roman perspectives actually overlap perfectly here. Here's the thing. We lack the glory, the honor, the the. Uh, the dominion, intrinsic in being the stewards of creation. See, we, we don't fall short. We don't lack. We do lack moral perfection, but that's not his point here. What we lack is the glory necessary to do what we were created to do, which is to be stewards of all creation. We lack the glory necessary to be what we are created to be. We are failing in the human job description to steward of all of creation, to be vice regents of God, to bear the image of God in dominion over what God created. We lack the glory intrinsic to that. We lack the honor, the dignity, the power, and the authority to be vice regents, and we abuse our position as stewards instead of glorifying God in it. Let me show you these verses from Psalm 8 because I think it's a, a critical tie-in that's in the background, not only of this passage, but much of the New Testament. In Psalm 8, David is considering, he has one of those existential moments where he finds himself uh, potentially out in the field watching sheep. We don't know, but he, he looks up and he sees the magnitude of the stars and he has a, a visceral response. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, 
and the Son of Man that you care for Him. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're just exposed under the canopy of heaven like a crystal clear night and you can just see all the stars? You ever, you ever, California, we had those nights. Um, and I suppose we probably do out here as well. You got to get into a dark, dark sky area to, to see, you know, you just can't see a lot of stars when you're near the city. Um, but I remember in Northern California in Fort Bragg when I was growing up, I was about 13 years old. It was one of my first, like I would call this one of my pre-gospel experiences. I wasn't a Christian, but it was one of those moments that softened my heart to become one. Um, we, we would go to the gravel pit for parties. And um, my, I had an older brother, and I became the designated driver for the parties. He got smashed, and, um, and I drove. Um, and so uh, I was at this party and, and um, doing a little bit of drinking, but mainly around seniors, and I was like a freshman. Um, and so I climbed up to the top of a gravel pit, and I remember looking up, and it suddenly, that sudden overwhelming feeling of beauty, like, it, like I was sobered immediately. And I had that feeling of being so ridiculously small. And it felt like there was something so big and so beautiful weighing down on me. Like, I remember that moment. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what was happening. But it was one of those moments where the creation of God spoke to my soul about the reality of God. And I realized... That's exactly what happens to David. Now, David has a little bit more theology to help put that experience in place. And he has this overwhelming experience. And he prays to God. He's like, what is man that you're mindful of him? These little creatures made of dirt in all of the vastness of this beauty. Why do you care? Why do you pay attention? Why are you mindful of him? And the son of man, why would you care for him? Look at the rest of the passage. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. In in the Hebrew, that would be Adonai, which can be translated as angelic beings. Uh, It's also a name for God. And so this could mean that, that we were made a little lower than God. It can also mean that we were made a little bit lower than the angelic beings. Both meanings have the same effect. He's not saying we're low. He's saying we're high. Of all of God's creation, we were made just a little lower than God himself. A little lower than the spiritual angelic world. We were made just a little lower. And we were crowned with glory and honor. Notice, notice crowned with glory and honor. And then he defines what that means. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have given him dominion, power, authority over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And we see this fourfold categorization of, of, of the created animals that are echoed from Genesis 1. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion. Listen, we were crowned with glory and honor in the creation so that we could exercise dominion over the created order. That was the creational intent. God made us in his image so that we could bear that image as stewards of all things. That's the human job description. That's why you're here. That's why you exist. God didn't create you absent-mindedly with no purpose in the creation. There was a driving purpose in that creation that, that of all creation, He created humanity in His own image for the express purpose that we might wear that glory and that honor and exercise that dominion, that we might image God, that we might steward all of creation for the fullness and flourishing of life, for the glory of God and submission to God and for the good of one another. I think that definition fits 
what we're talking about and is much closer to Paul's intended meaning for glory and for this verse. All have sinned and as a result, we lack the glory and the honor bestowed on us by God as image bearers to exercise dominion over the physical universe. We abuse the dominion that's been entrusted to us. Now, why is this important? Right? Why does it even matter? Why are these details significant? Well, it'll play out more as we move through the letter, but, but I want to point out this morning that this means our problem, our deepest, most basic problem, is one of both commission and omission. Something we've done and something we can't do. Okay? We have the sin of commission. In other words, all have sinned. We've chosen to sin. We can't blame Adam for the choices we've made. We, now, we can make a theological argument that we can't help but sin, right? You have a free will, but you don't have a free desire. And so while you choose different manifestations, you, you're still driven by the same desires at the root of it. But we've all chosen. We have sins of commission. We have all committed cosmic treason against God. We have all acted unjustly toward others who are created in the image of God. We have all voluntarily placed ourselves in the position of being under the wrath of God. We chose to sin, the sin of commission. But we also have the sin of omission. We are not fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. And God holds that against us. We were created for a purpose. We were created with a job description and we have rejected the job. And we are not exercising the dominion that has been entrusted to us, the glory and the honor of being stewards. We are not imaging God to the rest of creation. We have failed. We lack the glory necessary to fulfill the job description of bearing the image of God and the stewardship of earth. We lack the glory of God. And as a result, we can't carry out the purpose for which we were created. Both of these things the cause, all have sinned, and the result, we lack the glory of God, are unsolvable problems for us. I mean, just pause there for a minute. What he is describing is hopeless. You can change your behavior because you can change your choices, but you are powerless to change your desires. You do not have the power to reach down into your heart and reorient the desires of your heart to to want the glory of God more than you want the glory of self. You can't. You are powerless to fix this problem. You are helpless in its grip. You can rearrange the furniture of your heart, but you are still Hitler. It's simply a different manifestation of the same core problem. And you cannot clothe yourself with the glory necessary to fulfill the human job description. You cannot simply decide, well, now I'll be crowned with glory and honor so that I can exercise dominion. You will abuse the dominion because your core desires are bent away from God. You will blaspheme God in your character, in your choices, and in your dominion. You have no choice. That's hopeless. And it is terrifying when you realize that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bad news is ridiculously bad. But that makes the good news even better. This little sentence tells us that we need to be rescued. Right? That we don't need renovation, we need resurrection. We don't need help cleaning up our lives, man, we need a whole new life. We, we don't need help just cleaning up our hearts, we need a brand new Heart, and it is something we can't get unless it is given to us. We need to be rescued. 
And then we need to be clothed with the glory and the honor necessary for us to fulfill the job description God has given to us in order to to exercise dominion over all of creation. Which means we needed someone who could undo the curse of sin. We needed someone who could not only pay its penalty and absorb the consequences of, of 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 its sin against God, its betrayal of God, but somebody who could undo its power to actually reorient the desires of the heart. We needed someone who could deliver us once again to the glory necessary to exercise dominion too so that we could be what we were created to be. And this is why Jesus was the perfect hero and the exact hero that we needed. He was the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. John 1 tells us that, that nothing was made that he didn't make. So that means Genesis 1, all of that stuff, he was there. Not only was he there, when it says he created them in his own image, that was Jesus creating them. Everything that was made was made through him. Second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, but he became the Son of Man. He was born in the flesh. He became the Son of Humanity. That's why it's so ridiculously important that he was born of a virgin. He didn't receive the broken nature from Adam like we did. He had the nature of his father. He never had the disordered desires. He was human as humans were created to be. He lived the human life as we were intended. He never lost the glory and the honor of dominion. And he never echoed the cosmic treason of humanity. He was human as humans were meant to be. He succeeded where Adam failed, and then he died under the curse of Adam as our substitute taking our place. And he paid the price completely. And when he was raised again, he was victorious over death, victorious over the curse. And he took his rightful place, not just on the throne of God, but now on the throne of David. He is enthroned not just as God over creation, but as man, as steward of creation. He not only created everything, he is now the steward as man over everything. He has resurrected man and he invites us by faith into that recreated, reconstituted humanity that his death and resurrection purchased that we might be completely forgiven and made new, that we might once again be covered with the glory and the honor of God's creation, that we might follow Him not only as our God but as our King, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, as it says in Romans 8, that He might be the firstborn of a new humanity set free from sin and restored to glory. He is the man described in Psalm 8. He is the man made a little lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honor, and all things have been put under his feet. That's good news because he did it in love. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's really good news because that's all there is. Praise God for that. Next week, we're going to be looking at a few key words that help us understand why he had to die and what God actually accomplished in his death. We all know Jesus died for sin and he rose again, but there are layers and layers of complexity under there, so we're going to be digging into that next week. Let me close this in word prayer. And uh, we will share communion and, um, in a moment. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that even though we are mud men, mud women, that, that man, our day under the sun is, is like a flower that blooms on the hillside and then passes away in the heat of the afternoon sun. We're here for a moment, generation after generation after generation of humans who think the world revolves around them, that they are the most important person that's ever walked the face of the earth, that they are the most significant person in every traffic jam, Lord, that, that, that we, are, we are so obsessed with ourselves. And yet, 
You loved us. You are mindful of us. Even in all of our foolishness and our arrogance and our short-sightedness, you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to become one of us. That he might die the death we deserve to die. That he might bear the weight of our sin. That we might be set free, made new, recreated, into the very image of Christ. Lord, I thank you for that humble love. I thank you for that incredible truth. I thank you that you revealed it to us and that you've invited us into it. Lord, I thank you for the bad news that's been revealed to us this morning. That you expose our hearts in ways we don't like to be exposed and you show us things we don't want to see. But you do it in love, not to condemn us, but to invite us to be loved, to be forgiven in grace to be received and made new. Give us hearts to receive that gift and to keep receiving it. Give us a responding love to that love. Give us the gift of humility in the face of that glory. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.